Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, hosted by Dr. Liz Brooke, welcoming established and emerging voices in literacy education and the science of reading. Explore with us the connections between literacy research, educators' knowledge and skills, and the implementation into classroom instruction. We're actually, as it turns out, teaching many kids the things that struggling readers do. You just heard Emily Hanford, a senior producer and correspondent with APM Reports from American Public Media. Ms. Hanford is an award-winning journalist and is our guest today on All for Literacy. Here's your host, Liz Brooke. Welcome to the All for Literacy podcast, where we connect with established and emerging voices in the national literacy conversation to map a path forward informed by the science of reading. I'm Dr. Liz Brooke, and along with my colleague, Dr. Tiffany Hogan, we are joined by journalist Emily Hanford, who brought the literacy conversation into American homes with the serial podcasts, Hard Words, Why Aren't Our Kids Being Taught to Read?, and sold a story, How Teaching Kids to Read Went So Wrong. Welcome, Emily and Tiffany. Thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Hi, Liz and Emily. Great to be here. Thank you. And this topic that we're going to talk about today is so extremely personal to me as I was one of those teachers and I am seeing and hearing myself in the stories that are being shared through your work. So I'm delighted to be able to dig into these topics with you and Tiffany today. It seems that you started telling this story to a broader, more public audience in 2018 with hard words and continued with Sold a Story that recently came out. Did the pandemic reignite the story or what unanswered questions or data pushed you to re-engage with the story that ultimately became the podcast Sold a Story? Well, yeah, the answer to that is kind of a long story. I'll try to tell you it briefly. I, I got interested in this topic like five years ago now, actually before Hard Words. And you're right that Hard Words, which was an audio documentary podcast episode and an article that came out in 2018. I think that is the piece that a lot of people point to as the one that they first discovered um, that I did. But actually, the year before that, in 2017, I did a piece that was specifically about kids with dyslexia and why they have a hard time getting the help they need in school. And I've been an education reporter for a long time, and I work on these long-form projects. I do two or three of them a year. And I had no idea that I would still be on this topic five years later. But that just opened up this huge um, topic that I didn't know anything about. And that I quickly recognized was a really big issue and problem. So hard words was really the piece that I did out of the dyslexia piece, which asked the large, because what, what was very clear to me after doing this piece about what kids with dyslexia need is that, that lots of kids aren't being taught how to read in school. And the kids with dyslexia are having the most problem with that. They're sort of the biggest casualties when core instruction is not teaching kids what they need to know about written English. But lots of kids are struggling. And dyslexia itself, as Tiffany can tell us, is on a continuum, right? Some people have very severe dyslexia, some people much milder. And whether you quote unquote have dyslexia or not is some sort of decision someone makes along that continuum, right? But what we know is that none of us are born with brains they're wired to read. Some of us don't have a problem learning. It's really easy and we don't even need much instruction in some cases. But it turns out that a lot of us, in fact, maybe even most of us, most kids, really do need good instruction. They really depend on it. So hard words was the first foray into sort of looking at core instruction. And I think that caught a lot of people's attention. It caught the attention of parents who, whose kids are struggling a little bit or a lot and was like, oh yeah, I'm not the only one. There are a lot of parents out there who think they're the only one. It caught the attention of teachers and it caught some teachers and others in a sort of an alarming way, like you were talking about yourself. Oh, huh, really? I'm not teaching kids what they need to know? And many people bristled at that and were defensive. 
and some people still are, but I've watched over the years individuals in my email inbox and on Twitter change their mind about this and say, oh, I think you're right. There's some stuff I didn't know about how kids learn to read and what I need to teach them to make sure that all kids can do as well as we want them to do. And I did a series of other programs uh, through, through there and through the pandemic. So I wouldn't say the pandemic itself actually was a, a tipping point in terms of making Sold a Story. In fact, we were already sort of beginning to make that podcast. Um, and I can talk a little bit about what about the pandemic. But essentially hard words in the reporting before and after that, I just kept coming back to the question of sort of why and how. Why and how did it happen that we, broadly speaking, the human, human beings, <laughs> have known actually for about 50 years or so, there's been this big body of evidence accumulating on reading and how it works, how our brains do it, what we need to learn, why some people have a hard time learning it, what that means, the implications of all that. There's this big body of research on that. And it was just very clear that many people in schools didn't know it. Many parents didn't know it. Many people in general didn't know it. So Sold a Story was really answering the question, why? Why, if researchers and others have known this for so long, why do people in schools not know it or not know it in a way that is really helping them teach kids uh, better how to read? So Sold a Story was well underway when the pandemic came along, but I would say that the pandemic actually shifted the reporting a little bit in a few different ways. One, suddenly I couldn't leave my house and go places. And what I'm used to doing as a reporter is getting on an airplane, getting on a train, getting in my car, visiting people, visiting classrooms. Um, and I couldn't do that. So I had to do it all like this <laughs> remotely, which was an interesting challenge. But in fact, it was because Silda's story actually had so much history that had to be told, it wasn't as much of an impediment as I originally thought. I was really in a panic at first thinking, we're not going to be able to do this. And then I realized that what I really needed for that was to talk to a lot of people and to go into archives, to dig into the history, to look at documents, to find old video and audio, to try to understand how an idea, essentially sold a story is about an idea about reading that isn't right, that has taken hold in American schools and has implications for how kids are being taught. The other thing I'll say about the pandemic, I think one of the things I started to notice in my early interviews was that the pandemic was revealing this problem to many parents. So parents were sitting and were basically guests in the first grade classroom all of a sudden. So when you're a parent and you send your kid off to school, essentially you say goodbye and they go into the classroom and the door closes and you don't know very much about what happens in there. I mean, maybe you get invited in and you volunteer. And, and as school goes on, for those of us who are parents, it gets more and more a closed box, right? As they get older and older and you send them right. off and you just assume and trust that they're being taught the things they need to know. And a whole lot of parents all over the world were suddenly in their kids' classrooms with them. And they were seeing how kids were being taught to read. And there were a number of parents I was finding in the course of my interviews and phone calls who were looking at that, that instruction and saying, what is this? Why are they being taught this way? What's going on? Right, because as a former first grade teacher myself, you don't often invite the parents during the reading block. You might invite them in to hear a class play or something like that. But you're absolutely right. It gave parents a window into what was what was happening. So I appreciate that background and perspective that it has been going on even through the pandemic. And then it gave you a different perspective. But the why was so important of Solda Story. So thank you for sharing that. This is Tiffany and uh, nice to see you, Emily. Yeah, Sold a Story, you know, brought sometimes contentious conversation within education to the forefront. In response to reporting, there was an opinion piece that was published by the Heckinger Report, where 58 educators addressed it by saying, quote, we're dismayed that at this moment in our history, when all of us should be banding together to support literacy education, the podcast Sold a Story fans divisiveness, creating a false sense that there's a war going on between those who believe in phonics and those who do not. How do you respond to this group of educators and their response to you? Yeah, that's a good question. So my response to that letter is, I agree that uh, everyone should be banding together to support literacy education for sure. 
Um, I don't think that the podcast sold a story is fanning divisiveness or creating a false sense that there's a war going on. I think sold a story is responding to a problem. We know that there was sort of a so-called reading war back in the 90s and early 2000s. And I think a lot of people thought that war was over. And I think that the sort of disagreements about how to teach reading have been with us uh, all this time and that it's having a real impact on children and parents and our whole society. So I got into this reporting, really, I told you in 2017 through that piece about kids with dyslexia. And the reason I did that piece is because I was hearing the same story from parents all over the country about their kids struggling and them going to the school and saying, there's a problem here. And the school in many cases saying, we don't see a problem. Everything seems fine. Or don't worry, it'll all come together. She'll catch up. He'll catch up. It'll be fine. And it wasn't fine. So all of this reporting really is as was initiated by that, by, by a, a sense that there's a systemic problem here because no other time in my career as a reporter have I heard the same story, the same lines, the same like moments in the story when the parents would start crying. Um, I was just hearing that over and over again. And I was like, there's something going on here. So I, I think... I think something else about that response uh, from the 58 literacy educators um, is they point out, so they framed it as this is a false war going on between those of us who believe in phonics and those of us who do not. And I think something that I've actually been pretty careful to point out in my reporting is I, I actually don't think this is about having phonics instruction or not exactly. So I actually think a lot of schools have responded to a lot of the research in the 90s and early 2000s by adding a little bit of phonics. And in fact, many of the people who call themselves balanced literacy, who I was focusing on on the podcast, have added phonics at various times into their program. So it's not really, and we can talk more about this, it's not only or just a lack of phonics and adding phonics doesn't solve the problem. I think what I'm trying to point out in my reporting is it's not the absence of something, it's the presence of something. So what you find is the presence of an idea in a lot of schools within the curriculum, within the professional development. And the idea is that kids don't have to learn how to sound out words, that that's one way that a beginning reader can figure out what a word is. But they have lots of other options too. They can come up with a word by thinking about something that would make sense, by looking at some of the letters, the first letter, looking at the picture. There's all these ways. And it makes sense at a certain level, right, to say, hey, a little kid who doesn't know how to read yet, let's give them lots of options to figure out the words. But the point is that if you're not focusing on teaching kids how to sound out the words, you're not actually helping the kid learn the best, most effective, most efficient way to learn those words. And in fact, this is a problem for some kids, right? We're actually, as it turns out, teaching many kids the things that struggling readers do. The people who aren't good at sounding out words, who don't know how to do that, skip words, look at the first letter, come up with a good guess. They don't actually know how to read the words very well. So that's the shocking thing that I didn't reveal and sold a story. Earlier reporting that I did showed this problem which is that in many schools, kids are being taught the habits of a struggling readers. And sold a story was the question of how and why did that happen? And it tells the story of the idea that kids don't have to be taught how to sound out words, where it comes from, how it becomes so popular and how it became embedded in materials and assessments and other things that are very popular in schools, particular products that lots of schools buy and I will point out, even if schools don't buy these particular products from these people that I talk about and sold a story, many schools have their own homegrown version of the same thing, right? So there's a basic idea about how you figure out a kid's reading level and the kinds of books you give them when you're teaching them how to read and the way you divide them into groups for instruction that are all sort of built on the same idea. And it's fairly pervasive in elementary schools, not just in the United States, but in other parts of the world, too. I think it really hits on the idea that curriculum cannot be the only thing that tries to solve a problem. 
because we can have the pile on effect and then it's piling on to misinformation around how reading develops and about how best to teach children. If you pile on and don't really de-implement in research, we do some de-implementation studies. So it's not just about implementing something new, but it's de-implementing. And a lot of de-implementation revolves around changing the perception in which or the theory in which old methods were placed upon. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I wanted to show and help people understand in Solda's story that I came to understand is that, you know, many teachers don't realize that the the things they're doing, the things they've been taught in professional development or they've learned from their fellow teacher across the hall. Many of these people are wonderful, really good, dedicated teachers. They've learned things about how to teach reading that have an idea at the base. They're based on an actual theory about how kids learn to read. And this theory is not right. This theory was shown not to be right quite a long time ago. So I think that this is very eye-opening to all kinds of people who didn't know anything about this. You know, so I get the email all the time from the teacher, like, I had no idea. The parent, I had no idea. But you know what I'm also getting in it? I, I, I'm very moved by these. I'm actually getting emails from people who did know a lot of this stuff. People who are doing the research, have been involved in it, who just hadn't, who didn't know all the pieces of the history, like hadn't put it all together. And that's what I was striving to do is say, there's a story here about how one thing led to another and about how people influenced each other and about how we got here. Can we like wind that back? And I, I, I feel good about the fact that, that this is even for people who are really expert, people I look up to in terms of their expertise in this area, have been writing and just saying, thank you. I didn't, I hadn't put all the pieces together. Um, and so that, you know, that's what sold a story. That's what we tried to do. And it was very hard. <laughs> well, I thank you for doing it because I am one of those researchers that lived through this past 20 year period and, you know, had the naive view that if the science was happening, it would be put into practice. Uh, such a naive view. Of course, we now have a science around implementation and translation that really speaks to the methods around. But this is your reporting of pulling together all that information and really telling that story uh, was so powerful and is so helpful to move this forward. Yes, thank you so much. The, the idea that you were both just talking about, and it's something that I didn't understand when I was teaching is the why, right, of what you're doing. And, and you said, Emily, it, it was based on an idea. And then you know, I told a friend and they told a friend and, you know, we're all teaching that way. And so that importance of not only the programs, right, that are based in the science of reading, but having the teachers so that it's not just a program, but having that professional learning so they understand the why of what they're doing in these programs. So that in a case where if they don't have an appropriate program in the classroom, they still understand what's at the heart of what they're doing. The why is so important. And so many of us didn't get that in our undergraduate programs. Uh, can I say one thing about that? Yeah. So I think about this a lot. I think that if more teachers had been taught more about reading and how it works and how kids learn to do it, for example, in their teacher preparation programs, so we know that that's actually been a focus for a long time is teacher preparation, right? And many people, and there's been many studies about the problems in general. We don't have a, there's much evidence about this sort of enough time. We don't spend enough time training teachers. We don't necessarily do it very well in this country. Tra teachers come into teaching missing a lot of things that they need to know. And there's only so much that your preparation can teach you. But and I, I think I started doing this sold a story and looking at the curriculum and the professional development out of the understanding that even if we solved the teacher prep problem, there's still this other part of it that I think is even bigger, which is all the teachers who are in schools today and the fact that they are learning an idea, they are learning something from the materials themselves. I think that as a reporter who tries to explain things and help people understand things, I, ha I put a lot of hope and faith in the idea that if teachers understand the why, that that will go a long way in solving the problem. And I think that we wouldn't have the problem, right? So if teacher prep were better, if teachers had been for decades learning more of the scientific research in their teacher preparation program, coming out with a good solid understanding of the why and how kids learn to read, 
I don't think some of the approaches that have become popular could have become so popular because I think they would have known, wait, no, that's not right. They would have been, you know, but because they didn't know and because a lot of administrators and others didn't know, I think a lot of approaches that are founded and grounded in this incorrect idea were able to take off. At the same time, I think it's very important for teachers to know the why, but I think knowing something and knowing how to teach it are very different things. So we're still facing, we're facing a moment in this country and I put a lot of faith in, if people just know the science, then things will get better, but I don't think they will. Teachers need to both know it and understand and understand the why, and then they do need to be given new tools and curriculum and ways to actually put it into practice. And I know Tiffany can talk a lot about of this, this translation of the research into practice is still something that is being worked out in many places. And until that really gets worked out and teachers really get the help they need for months and months and years and years, I think, um, I don't think we're actually going to make a big dent in this. Uh, it's not just, I wish it were the case that you could just tell people why and everything would be fine. But I think people hearing about the why gets a lot of people curious and interested, opens up this whole thing that they need to learn about. And now it's time to help them learn it and put it into practice. Right. Learning the how, right? Even understanding explicit and systematic and structured, right? It's not just teaching phonics, but making sure, to your point, how you also teach that. So I've, I've heard the phrase, and I know there's been articles written about the, the science of reading is incomplete without the science of teaching reading, right? And that's getting at that translational science that you were talking about, Tiffany. There's one thing that I want to also bring in, and both of you, I want your perspectives on this. So there's been a lot of focus on phonics, and we know that the science of reading is not just phonics. There's a very important other half of that simple view of reading, which is language comprehension, where Tiffany, this is your area of expertise. But maybe Emily, if I can start with you first is in your work, have you come across strong trends or discussions in the area of language comprehension in addition to that sound symbol correspondence that we've talked a lot about in terms of phonics instruction? For sure. And I would say that uh, understanding the relationship between language comprehension and word identification in that simple view of reading equation that I'm sure some listeners know, but maybe some don't. And that's simply a, uh, it was a, a theory, an idea that was put in, out in 1986 to try to sort of explain what was known about reading. And it's been further tested for years and years and shown to hold up really well. And that's this, you can think of it as sort of an equation, which is reading comprehension, which is the goal. We want everyone to be able to read the words and understand what they say, uh, get meaning from text. Everyone agrees that's the goal. And the understanding is that that can be thought of as an equation, which is your, it's your word identification ability, which is kind of complex in and of itself, but your ability to actually read and identify the words times your language comprehension, like all the words and that you know the meaning of, um, and not just the words you know the meaning of, but lots of things you understand about language and how it works, right? That was actually an equation that I would say Help, that simple view of reading equation, which does not say that reading is simple, it's just a simple way to understand what reading comprehension is. Word identification times language comprehension. So what it shows is that if you have lots of really good language comprehension, you're a little kid and we have many of them who come into school and they're great little talkers and they know a lot of words. If they don't learn how to decode those words in print, their reading ability and comprehension ability is not going to be very good. And the opposite is true. You can learn how to decode words, but if you don't know the meaning of very many words, if you don't know that much about uh, spoken language and how it works, your reading comprehension isn't going to be very good. I have I wrote about that in hard words. Like I presented that equation back then. It seemed like a very important part of it and uh, wrote about it in the New York Times um, after that. So I feel like that's a really important idea that needs to be understood by everyone. I think it's true that a lot of my work has focused on the word identification part of the equation uh, because that's where I identify that there was a real problem. Not saying that there's not problems with the other part and then the other part isn't important. But as I looked at this as a reporter, that was where I saw this real breakdown 
in terms of a misunderstanding of what that's all about. Because as you look through history, what you see and what you see in this idea that I was talking about in Sold a Story is that it misunderstands the importance of being able to decode the words. It says like, oh yeah, well, that's one thing you can do, but there's all these other things you can do. And it's no, 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 no. If, the dec- if kids don't have solid decoding ability, they're never gonna get to that reading comprehension where we all want them to get. So the sort of whole language idea and balanced literacy that grew out of whole language, I think the fundamental problem is that it misunderstands that there is a distinction between language comprehension and decoding ability. It mushes them together as if they're one thing. And what we do know is they become one thing. You put them together and it becomes the thing we all want. But the sort of which comes first, the chicken or the egg, the cause and the effect, sort of disentangling what are the pieces that kids need to become good readers. It's just if you look back through history, you see this real profound misunderstanding of the importance of and the way to get to good word recognition skills. I would agree. And I think that one way that we've tackled this issue in our research is to think of it as two separate lines of study. And that's helped to disentangle that a bit because some have said, you know, the science of reading is only around phonics or word recognition. But as you mentioned, Liz, I've been a part of decades of work on language comprehension that is really separate of word reading. Uh, We know that language comprehension starts developing from birth and that it is not something that goes to the wayside when children learn how to read words. But once they start to learn how to read words, at the same time, an instruction and assessment can involve language comprehension. And language comprehension has its own unique developmental trajectory. We know that it has its own unique malleable characteristics. And there's been decades of research funded by the Department of Education and the National Institutes of Health that have resulted in a science of reading around language comprehension that is not perhaps as intense in terms of the number of articles around word reading, but it has the same depth and breadth of instructional you know, aspects and cognitive science underpinnings as we do in word recognition. And so I often see, like you, Emily, when I go into schools, talk to teachers and educators, they'll say, Uh, But what about language? What about language when we're talking about systematic and explicit phonics instruction? It's not an either or. It is an and. And so we really try to think through that with educators. And I think this is also where that implementation translational science has been so helpful because what has been found across science is it's not really the efficacy or the impact of the research that's done in a certain area. It's actually the match to the context. So we think a lot about making sure that we're accounting for, even in our very initial studies around, you know, efficacy uh, with language comprehension or word reading, how does it link to the school setting or just the setting you want it to actually, you know, make a difference in? And so then we work in these research practitioner partnerships. We go through a process, which, you know, medicine is so far ahead of us in this way. They've seen that, you know, getting the science done and expecting it to happen in practice just doesn't happen on its own. There's a whole scientific process, the implementation science process, which is a scientific process in and of itself that involves really listening to teachers and listening to what's going on in those contexts, which you've done, Emily, and so brilliantly in the podcast and the reporting you're doing. But I think, what you know, tying this all together, we have the science of reading that involves both word reading and language comprehension. There's also so many other parts to the science of reading that we hear about too, like how do we work with emerging bilinguals? How do we make sure that the work we're doing is equitable? And those all have their own science of reading. But, uh, you know, it's really this science that is the foundation and the implementation science that plays into it as well. You know, can I say one thing and actually ask, maybe ask Tiffany this question, because I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that um, the simple view of reading and sort of what you talked about before, how there's this sort of these distinct strains of study and, and recognizing the word recognition, the language comprehension is two um, different elements that are important to look at in, the, in and of themselves. And I think that's incredibly important. But, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tiffany, I think one of the things that's complex about all that is that we know that they actually do affect each other. They're not necessarily distinct, right? So like a kid 
who gets decoding ability then has the key ability to kind of expand their language comprehension through reading. So one of the things we know, right, is that at those earliest stages, like actually for many years, I think up until kids are really in middle school, like their spoken vocabulary tends to be much bigger than their read vocabulary. And then they they start to, exp- if, they, if you become a reader, you actually use words and encounter words and know words through reading that you never, almost never use in conversation. So I guess the question is, they, they do, even though they're distinct, they do affect each other. Absolutely. And I think the way I've tried to think about this in my professional development is almost like a third strand uh, to make it more comprehensible. So it's like you have these two separate strands, but you also have this third strand, which is basically the intersectionality between the two. And they really can play out across different learners. And so it really is not as easy as just two separate strands. However, uh, it can be as easy as that in that way, too. So you almost have to attend to all three. So you have to tend to the language comprehension from birth all the way through. And sometimes what happens if you focus too much on the the third strand of the intersectionality, what happens is there becomes a volley so that you focus only in the early grades on word reading. And But what we have to do is in the early grades also focus on language comprehension at the same time we're focusing on word reading. And by doing those two things, then the the intersectionality will play out in the richest form over time. Because as you're learning to read words, the language comprehension is still going along. And actually, you know, it's you mentioned this, the language comprehension will be ahead of word reading. So when we work with our, you know, language comprehension, you know, intervention studies in, for instance, first grade, the books we use are really more at the second grade level because their language comprehension is ahead of what they can read. And so then you really are on two separate developmental strands, but they do merge and they do affect each other over time. So I think it it makes, I'm just reiterating what you're saying and kind of adding to it because I'm always thinking about what is the best way to describe the complex longitudinal trajectories we see to teachers as they're trying. And I know you think about this often too. How do we do that translation? And I think the three-strand idea can work well because I don't want there to be a time in which there isn't instruction in language comprehension. And likewise, we often see that word reading instruction falls off in the later grades. And I know that's something we want to get to as well as in middle school. What you see is then there's this volley back to like only comprehension and no word reading. And we have to have good continued word identification instruction at the later grades, which also feeds into your language when you start to learn like Latin meanings and derivative morphology. It really helps to think through that. So I know Liz wanted to chat a bit about the middle school age, and I I do want to make sure we hit that. I think it ties right into our discussion here. Absolutely. And Tiffany, you mentioned about this shift in the upper grades, fourth grade and above, and kind of stopping the work on word recognition or word ID. And we do see that that challenge of these students are now being asked to read to learn, but many of them have gaps from when they were learning to read. So Emily, in your work, as you've been talking to different educators and parents, I know a lot of the focus has been around that K to three and the foundational reading skills What's been your perspective on teachers who are working with students in grades four through 12? Well, I get a lot of emails from them and they are many of the most difficult ones for me to respond to because I get emails like, but I'm an eighth grade teacher and a whole lot of my kids really can't read very well. What do I do? I'd love to do some future reporting more on that, like the how of that, because it is really a complex how just at a just at a logistical level, so many other levels too. But by the time a kid gets into upper elementary and especially middle school, there's not really time in the day for taking them back to teach them a lot of the stuff that they missed, right? What are you going to take them out of? Social studies? Well, that's going to be a mistake because in fact, we actually know that what they're learning in social studies, hopefully with a good rigorous curriculum, is essential to the development of their language comprehension, reading comprehension knowledge that is going to be required to be a good reader who can understand what you read. So I'd say that's one thing. I hear from middle school and high school teachers all the time and parents of kids that age basically saying, what do I do? 
I think another thing, though, is I think that this this reporting and this attention, not just my reporting, but I, I would say an overall attention that's coming from people like Tiffany and their work and many researchers and a lot of other reporting that's being done and teachers who are really speaking up about this. There's a lot going on right now out there in the national conversation about the so-called science of reading. And I think it is piquing the interest of a lot of middle school and high school teachers who might have originally thought this didn't affect them. But many of them do know that they have kids who are struggling. And many of them have always just assumed and been told and been guided that this is a comprehension issue. And they're understanding that a comprehension issue, just getting back to what Tiffany was just talking about, has parts to it. And that there are a percentage of these kids, not all, but many, I think, and many are saying like, I didn't really realize that these kids were missing the sort of foundational skills of how to decode the words. They haven't gotten good at that. They haven't gotten automatic. They can sound out the words, some of them, but they skip a lot of them. And this just isn't a skill that they have developed. It is not, they have so many middle school and high school teachers and tutors are saying, I have to break this habit of them just skipping the words, guessing, just getting the gist of it. It's like they learned that reading isn't necessarily accurately reading all the words. They have, they have taken this kind of sense of what reading is, which is where Soul to Story actually gets to. It gets to this kind of heady question, like what is reading? <laughs> what is reading? I, reading, I think, is accurately reading the words that the author wrote right. and understanding what, and not skipping, you know, one out of every four words. Your reading comprehension is in the tank if you skip one out of every four words. In fact, Tiffany can talk about this, but there's research that shows that just missing just a few words in a higher level text can profoundly affect your understanding. So if you, you know, it, it doesn't take much to be led astray as you're reading if you're not getting those words. And the point is that getting most of the words, almost all of them accurately, is something that you have to be able to do sort of in order to be able to comprehend, in order to, and also in order for your brain to spend the time it needs to spend on comprehension, which is a difficult cognitive task, reading a complex text and understanding what's going on. What we don't want is an eighth grader struggling with the words. We want an eighth grader struggling with the meaning of the text. Absolutely. And Tiffany, I'll turn it back over to you. You know, I think too that the, I hear from a lot of middle school and high school teachers as well. And what's even tricky too is thinking about systemic change and the systems that are in place to support children around word reading in the middle and high school level, they're just not in place for many districts. They almost assume that once you hit fifth or sixth grade, you're a reader. And like you said, Emily, just missing even a few words is really detrimental to your comprehension. So even getting those systems in place and thinking through systems, Margaret Goldberg, who helped write your fabulous discussion guide around Soul to Story, she wrote a powerful blog in 2019 called Teachers Won't Embrace Research Until It Embraces Them. And, and in this blog, she talks a lot about, you know, what's enticing about the idea that you discuss and sold a story. And I want to think about, you know, what's the, the breakdown we see between data and research and the classroom? Is there something we can learn from the past on how to embrace teachers and to make them feel more empowered and more part of the process? And uh, what was so powerful in the balanced literacy movement? How can we rally that around the science of reading? Well, I recommend everyone go read that piece by Margaret Goldberg, by the way. Teachers won't embrace research unless it embraces them, Margaret Goldberg. And I think she makes several, it's a very short piece, and she makes a couple of very important points that need to be responded to. And one of them, as I recall in that blog post, is she just basically asked the question, Okay, so I'm starting to know about all this research, but how do you do that with 25 wiggly five-year-olds? And, you know, that is a really important question. How do you do this with 25 little kids? And another point that Margaret makes in that piece, which I think is really important, is that we could all benefit from researchers seeking out connections with teachers. I think that some of us has to be put back onto researchers who really should be doing some of this work, because I think that if researchers can understand teachers and teaching more, 
it can, as Margaret makes this point in the piece, like that will benefit the research and vice versa. So I think that this translation from research into practice sometimes lands on, and it needs to be, uh, you know, on the teachers and the schools to do that translation. But I think there's really a role for researchers here. And I know many researchers are involved in this. And Tiffany is one of them who do have a lot of experience going into classrooms and seeing how this works. But I think that's just an important piece of the puzzle. I think researchers have a lot to benefit by being proactive and reaching out to teachers. And I know I've connected some researchers and teachers over the past few years around some of these questions and have heard back that it was just incredibly beneficial on both sides for the teachers to talk to the researchers and vice versa. I completely agree with you. And I think it really gets to the heart of this research to practice partnerships that really need to happen. But it's on the researchers to do that and to make those connections. There's a movement just in general around research and working with the stakeholders that we're committed to. Like, for instance, the phrase that's often used in autism, but is used in different disabilities. No research about me without me. And that's not without me in your research, but without my voice being heard. And I think that, you know, really thinking through as researchers, sometimes it's easy because we do have a platform to try to speak for educators as opposed to speaking with educators. And I know that some, you know, powerful work's been done where researchers, for instance, go in and take a year and become a, a teacher or, or if you have that luxury and that privilege or to really just create trusting working relationships really understanding kind of the barriers on both ends, what researchers can do and what teachers can do. And I see that as being what can really leapfrog the field forward. And I think it goes to some of the ivory tower that researchers, you know, oh, you're in the ivory tower. You don't know what's happening in the classroom. And some of that is really true. And so I, I really like being part of this movement of not just thinking about research to practice, but I often am thinking about practice to research. It's not one, you know, unidirectional, but it's bi-directional. So I, I really appreciate that insight too. You know what? I just thought, of, you know, I, I know there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of foundations. There's a lot of people with resources and money who really want to do something to change this. What about like a fellowship program yeah. where researchers went, with, like you paired up researchers and teachers and they're like fellows together and the researcher visits and maybe even does some teaching in the teacher's classroom and the teacher visits with the professor and is involved in his or her research. It would just be a fascinating two-way street. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about that before. You know, my husband is a, I can't believe I'm bringing this up. This, this is not like a plug for my husband and his work, but it just made me think of this. My husband's a theater director and theater professor. And he does a project with his students and in theater settings called In Your Shoes. And what it is, is they, he'll, if he listens to this, he'll say I butchered the way I described it. So sorry. <laughs> but anyway, the basic idea is that you, you, you get together, you're paired up with someone who has some sort of di across difference in some way. It can be done in various ways. In fact, so he teaches at Georgetown University and they did this amazing one where it was Georgetown students and then students at Patrick Henry College, which is a conservative Christian college in Virginia. And they came together. And what you do is you interview each other, you transcribe the interviews, and then each person picks a chunk of the interview that they did with the other person and they perform it. So they have to, and they do it in front of an audience. And so you, you, like, you try to get the mannerisms of the person and all that, but you're getting deeply inside something from someone else's perspective. You actually have to be them. So what if like a researcher had to sort of be a teacher and a teacher had to be a researcher yeah, no, I love that idea. Anyway, I think there's some of that, you know, that's a great idea. And there are some initiatives starting like that and have been emerging. There's something called the RISE Institute where you pair up with, it's a researcher pairing up with a, a practitioner and really trying to learn implementation science together and hmm. do the work together. I actually have a implementation science conference where we do similar partnerships and we're really bringing everyone to the table it's tricky because you have lots of different barriers and facilitators for each group. Yeah. But I think it's so important to do that. I tried to do a bit of that. I did this uh, thing on my sabbatical last year. I called Take a Scientist to Work Day. Um, I asked if my any some of my partner uh, school districts, if they'd be willing to just have me come in and just hang out with them, you know. Uh, and I learned so, so much. They say they learned a lot, but I, I beg to differ. I, I learned much more. 
from them. Um, and it was just, uh, it was a great experience, but I like the idea of making it even more formal yeah. and really encouraging it within our structures, uh, you know, to encourage this process. Yeah. But you're right. There'd be so many barriers to it. And that's the problem. But it's like, let's figure out a way to get over some of those barriers and just do it in a few instances and have people write about it and communicate about it. You know, Yeah, actually, I mean, even though I only went to two of those days, it made a huge difference. I haven't really figured out how to write about it as much. That's a that's the next step. But I, I do think it makes a big difference. Any time you can spend together. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, maybe that's the next episode yeah. we can do together <laughs> is talking about it instead of writing about it. And it is as we close today, that is kind of we started to talk about the question that I wanted to ask both of you is how do we make sure we maximize what feels like a moment in time when more and more people are talking about the science of reading what is the best way to make sure this doesn't feel like just another swing in the pendulum, if you will? In one way, it's uh, I love this idea of pairing up practitioners with research and researchers with practitioners. But Emily, I'll start with you and then shift to Tiffany in terms of from your perspective, what are the next steps? What can we do to make sure we maximize this moment in time? Well, it's a difficult question for me because I am a journalist. And so there are questions I want answered and I have a way of going and asking questions and getting information and then putting it out into the world. And I care about what happens to it, but I feel like I, I don't really have a role in directing it per se. I mean, I know that I do end up sort of directing it somewhat because I talk about it and then I follow it up with other work. So there's a direction in that flow. But um, I don't know. I feel like this is out of my lane in some ways. This is up to other people who are the advocates, the teachers, the people in the classrooms to figure out what to do exactly. I have concerns. You know, I have a big concern that everyone will look back 10 years from now and say, oh, well, that was the big thing in 2020 and 2021, 2022, 2023. And that didn't work. So, you know, I am worried that... Um, there's a lot of push and pull in education because education is so important and there's a sense of urgency and there's a sense that if we understand that there's something we need to do better or differently, we need to do it right now. And that's important because kids are only six years old once, right? So right. urgency matters, but urgency becomes part of the problem because people just do things quickly. They get a grant and they have to figure out a way to spend the money fast. Uh, they have to implement something in one year or less you know, they, they, they have to learn this in two weeks. We, try, we make schools and teachers do things too quickly and then they're not done well and they're not done with staying power and we have so much turnover in the field anyway. And I think all of those things I just said increase the turnover, right? They, they, they are part of the reason for the churn. So I don't know. If I had a magic wand, I would make everyone feel absolute urgency about this, but I also would be like, chill out, slow down, and like, do it right. <laughs> right. And then, you know, as we've been talking about this entire podcast, exactly what it means to do it right is not simple. And I, I don't even, there, there's not one, this is how you do it. This is the thing to buy. This is the training to get. That's, no, this is all much more complicated than that. So this is complex stuff. So that's the next question is... <laughs> How do we do this, yeah. right? Okay. And Tiffany, your thoughts? I've been thinking about it in kinds of three prongs. The first one is in the research that we do, and this is a shift in thinking through translational research and implementation science. And it gets exactly what you said, Emily, about this feeling of need, but also it just kind of ebbs and flows. I think we have to think about the word sustainability. Everything we do, you know, when we work with our school partners, I'm thinking about how's this going to transition once the grant's over? You know, once the work is quote unquote done on my end, what have I done to create something sustainable in the systems? And it's usually that system level approach that creates sustainability. So I think sustainability has to be on our mind. It's exactly what you said, Emily, in terms of like not looking back and going, well, we did that great thing and nothing was sustained. And I think there are, there are some really important decision points we can make along the way that create sustainability. And that leads to my second guidepost along this way. And that is to really raise the voices of those who are 
on the ground with those kids. I mean, I am lucky and have the privilege of being a scientist who has a voice in this dialogue. And I want to use that privilege I have to raise the voices of my education partners. Again, right in line with what you've done, Emily, in your reporting is just really bring those voices forward and really bring those stories forward. And the third one for me is to just encourage you know, myself and scientists uh, around the science of reading to get uncomfortable. There's a, it's a very uncomfortable position to go out there and spend a day in schools. And it's really comfortable to sit in my office and write grants and research articles, even to write for practitioners can feel quite comfortable. But what's not comfortable is really opening myself and the research I do into the really hard truths that are going on. And then creating grants that step outside of the traditional approach to science and really do implementation science and do it with partners. It's very, very difficult. One of the things I've been doing is trying to write articles with my educational partners. And that's something that's not often done. So those are the things I've been thinking through. But it's complex and it's going to take a long-term sustained attention to the problem. Let me just say one thing. I'm hopeful about this because I think there are so many parents and teachers who are really starting to get this and who really care and see. Like, I think, I don't think the pressure is going to go away on this one because I think that so many parents and teachers have had their eyes opened. So I'm hopeful in that way. I hope that sustained pressure that will lead to sustainable outcomes. (laughs) Fantastic. Absolutely. I love that concept of sustainability in the partnership with researchers and practitioners. It's just so, so critical. Well, thank you so much to both Emily and Tiffany. I think this has been a fabulous conversation, especially around what we can do to keep this momentum going, the focus on the science of reading and not only for our elementary students and educators, but also for those in the upper grades. And you can join the conversation on Twitter by following Emily at her Twitter handle, which is at E. Hanford, and Tiffany's Twitter handle, which is at Tiffany P. Hogan, and myself at Liz C. Brook. So we're excited to have you join us in future podcasts and future episodes and look forward to hearing more from All for Literacy podcasts. Thanks so much. Love this episode of the All for Literacy podcast? Subscribe, leave a review, and join the literacy conversation. 